welcome to Pragmatic Lives, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product team. My name is Rebecca Calajaris. I am the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you, host for today's event. Before we get started, a couple of housekeeping items. First, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the slides will be available after today's event. You'll be able to access them at pragmaticmarketing.com slash live starting tomorrow, and we'll send out an email with the link to the recording as well. Second, questions. We love questions. If you look at the bottom of the screen, you will see a series of round icons, and the second from the right, the one with the three dots on it, if you click on that, then you can select Q&A, and you can put in any and all questions you have throughout the presentation, and we will address them at the end. Uh, now. Many of you are already familiar with Pragmatic Marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for 25 years. Every month in our webinar series, our goal is to dive into the topics that matter the most to you and bring insight, best practices, and stories from the trenches from experts in the field. This month, we're digging into customer validation and the powerful insights it can provide to help you fine-tune your product decisions. And helping us do this is Luke Freiler, CEO of CenterCode, a leading provider of customer validation software and services, and longtime pragmatic partner. Welcome, Luke. Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Excellent. I know you've got a whole bunch set up for us today, so let's just dive right in. Awesome. So with that said, I'll start uh, very clearly with what we're going to be focusing on today, and our goal is to get this done in just about 45 minutes and have some time for questions. So as far as what you're learning today, uh, we're going to approach this from sort of a journalistic aspect, uh, starting with what exactly is customer validation, a basic level set, why it's critical to the success of your product and ultimately your company, who owns it typically within an organization, where in the market it applies, when it takes place within a product life cycle, and then the lion's share of this presentation will actually be about how it actually works and, and the actual fundamentals. So each of the first slides here will just be a couple slides and then we'll get to the nitty gritty. So a little bit about me, that is me and my son Calix right there. Um, I am the CEO and co-founder of CenterCode. I have a background uh, prior to being CEO, I was CTO. And my background is actually in engineering and UX. I was previously with Samsung and Ericsson prior to starting this company. Um, it was actually at those companies I had the experience that led me to sort of seeing the opportunity uh, for this space. I had experience in both hardware and software at both companies actually, and working with consumer and business products, so quite diverse. Uh, my email, if anybody would like to reach out directly, is luke at centercode.com, and you can also reach me and connect with me on LinkedIn. So to go ahead and jump in, just a little bit of background, kind of why we're here. Uh, this is a quote that we have right in the entrance to our building, and it's something I, I dearly love. Douglas Adams, who wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, once said, technology is a word that describes something that doesn't work yet. And this is a bit cynical, um, but I really like it. I, I like the idea that technology really should work. And the story I typically tell is uh, the simple fact that I wear contact lenses every day because my vision is horrible. And without them, um, I would not be able to see. I wouldn't be able to drive. I wouldn't be able to do virtually anything I do today. I, I would be handicapped, as many of us would. Um, but because those contacts just sort of do their job, 
Um, I don't think of them as technology, even though at one point in history, not that long ago, they were the pinnacle of technology and, and more impactful on my life than, than virtually anything else. So to me, it's a very meaningful statement. And, and as such, we have a very aspirational statement in response, which is we help companies create technology that works. And again, it may sound cynical and sarcastic, but it's actually very aspirational. We want more technology to fall in line with something as simple as contact lenses or even a pencil. Um, which again, at one point in history was, was monumental, but now is just part of our daily lives. That's how we think technology should work. So a little bit about the company, an overview here. Uh, this is our core competency. We exist to help companies engage with their customers and, and produce better products. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. We started this in 2001, very early into this field, and, and we're an industry leader by basically any metric. Now, as far as what our company invests in, we think of it as sort of our assets and then the resources and offerings that we put out based on those. So we have three core assets as a company. Um, the first is our platform, and, and this is a platform used by many technology and other companies um, to host their customer validation programs to be able to manage those sorts of projects. Next, we have our framework, and this is a process, a scalable and adaptable process that applies to the platform and layers on top of it to make sure all of the necessary components are, are taken care of. So the platform is, of course, the technology and the framework handles the process. And then finally, we have our tester panel. It's a community called Betabound um, that I'll be talking a little bit about later and how you can use that as well. But this is over 200,000 profiled candidates from around the world who've expressed an interest in engaging in these types of tests. Now, those are the assets. Those are the things that we uh, invest in and constantly engage in. But in terms of how we address the world and, and where we sort of generate revenue, um, the first is platform subscriptions. This is a SaaS model. Companies license our platform to host their own customer validation programs. And we do provide support services of varying levels on top of that. And then in addition to that, the second way to engage with CenterCode is fully managed programs. So many product managers come to us because they simply don't have any extra bandwidth um, and they need us to run these types of tests for them. So they lack the bandwidth or the experience to, to get this done, and they come to us and we manage those programs. And, and our revenue is actually split almost 50-50, meaning about half of our customers do leverage our platform to run their own programs, and the other half uh, run them through us with our managed services. Now, in terms of who we work with, uh, we work with a broad variety of amazing tech companies, and this is what we call sort of our brag slide. It's the thing I'm proudest of in the world. Um, we partner with what are effectively high growth tech as well as modern enterprise companies. So companies that may not have been technology companies, but technology is sort of seeping into their products. And this is just a small fraction of the companies we've worked with and from our website. You can learn a lot more, um, but just two sort of mini built-in case studies, uh, one which is Autodesk. Autodesk has an initiative from the highest levels that they need to be continuously engaging with customers throughout development and beyond. And our platform is one of the ways they do that. So more than 90 product managers at Autodesk rely on our platform to engage with over a quarter million customers. So that's something they've been doing for many years now, and it's, it's a very successful program. Another example is Roku, who is someone that a decade ago you probably hadn't heard of, but I actually visited them last week and, and learned that they're actually in one of four TVs that are sold in the US now. So they've just become an absolute dominant force. And they've used us since their inception, and they use both our platform as well as managed services. They've been an amazing company to watch grow, um, an amazing partner as well. And there's many other success stories and sort of interesting stories beyond this. You know, one of my favorite is that we worked with Nest um, before they had a name, and, and they were uh, just named after sort of a founder. 
And you know, of course, the, the story goes they were bought for over $3 billion in cash from Google just a, a couple short years later. So um, it's been fun to sort of work with those types of companies and see them grow. And again, this is just a, a small fraction of who we've had an opportunity to engage with, which has been wonderful. That's enough about us. I, I want to move on to customer validation and, and really the topic today, and starting with a, a basic level set. So what is customer validation? And we define it in two distinct ways. The, the first is what we call the lowercase definition, which is very simple. Customers testing unreleased products in their real environments. And, and you may think of it vaguely as beta testing, a very simple concept, but, but also a concept that sort of means something different to everyone, which is sort of a problem. We then have the uppercase version of customer validation, which is a, a proven discipline for gathering and evaluating this feedback. And you can think of this more as a, a specific methodology to produce a successful product. So whereas beta testing is something that's, that's typically vague and done different ways in different places, customer validation is a more explicit way to get this done uh, with proven results and, and again, a more scalable and adaptable fashion. Now, why we need this sort of uppercase uh, variant of this idea is, is pretty simple. Uh, once a year, we run an industry survey and we sort of ask a, a variety of questions relative to this industry, and one of which is very simple. It's just, what do you call this program? And what we found in our last survey was that there were more than 90 distinct names. And, and these were, again, a lot of product managers and all sorts of people filling this out. And there were you know, more than 90 different responses for what they even called these. And if you sort of extrapolate that out and realize that if they can't even call it the same thing, then they're probably not doing it the same way, which means they're not learning the same lessons, which means everybody's reinventing the wheel. So because of that, we saw a need to extend what we had been doing for, for decades um, in terms of uh, running these types of tests and, and make it something that everyone can sort of use as, as a scalable program. So customer validation, again, the uppercase version is a very explicit way to get this done um, that many of these great companies have been using for years now. So the defining attributes of customer validation and what sort of makes it different from other forms of, of customer engagement and testing. Um, first of all, we have targeted users. Uh, customer validation does leverage the market audience of a product. So this is really who you're intending to, to seek out in the market with this product. Next, we have real environments. And, and this is, again, very key to what customer validation is. is these are the homes, the offices, the, the realistic environments that these products will ultimately work in. Next, we have actual products. So this is post-prototype phase. These aren't paper prototypes. These aren't completely you know, incomplete products. I'll talk more about how complete they are in a bit, but these are actual physical products in the hands of customers. And then finally, this happens over time. And typically, these are weeks or in some cases, months. And these four traits together make this a very distinct process. And something else that's interesting is it does uh, sit adjacent to many other things like quality and UX and market research. I'll be talking about all of these to some degree. Um, but those are all typically done by different groups. And one of the discussions we'll be having today is about the idea that this is something that product managers typically engage on in their own, bringing their own knowledge and expertise to the table as opposed to just insights from others. So that's a very useful thing for product managers um, to ultimately be you know, the smartest person in the room. Now, in terms of the stages, um, I want to talk about sort of the three discrete phases that, that exist within customer validation as sort of an umbrella. Um, the first is what you would typically refer to or think of as an alpha test, which is a very quality-focused bug hunt. Typically, there's also a big component here in terms of dog fooding and employee testing, which is a whole other discussion. But what you're talking about here is typically 25 or more sort of real-world testers, uh, two or so weeks of, of short sprints. Alpha tests are typically not very extended, and they're also changing rapidly, which is why they typically have more of a sprint-style process. 
After alpha, we move to beta, and beta is a guided evaluation through the product in this methodology. So this isn't something as simple as just giving a product out and expecting feedback, but rather it's a guided evaluation with the intent of getting as many eyes on as much of the product as possible in as short a time as possible. And anyone who's ran a beta test before will know how challenging this can be. And again, this is a much more explicit process to get that done that can have much greater results. Now, typically these have around 50 or more testers and three or so weeks, um, three, sorry, three to six weeks of testing. So they're not extensive in terms of they're not months and months and months. They get a lot done very quickly. And I'm gonna go through this process uh, in great detail in a few minutes. Uh, finally, we have a field test, which is much more about natural usage. So whereas beta is about guiding them to make sure that each feature gets touched and you're getting uh, hands-on in those, again, real customers, real environments on the entire product, field testing is much more about natural usage of how the products use it or how the customers use the product when they're not directed. So typically, this is a wider audience and a bit more time. You could think of it as a soak test. It's sort of the opposite side of the coin of, okay, if we guide them to use every feature, we also want to see what happens when we don't guide them, what do and don't they use, and also collect analytics and so on behind the scenes. Now, in terms of the focus and sort of generally what we're getting out of these and, and where the product sits, um, alpha is very much about quality, but by the time we get to field, we shouldn't be as concerned about quality. The product should be in pretty good shape by then. Uh, whereas the customer experience is something that isn't nearly as important in alpha, it's not nearly as defined, beta really is the tipping point when these meet in the middle and become sort of a, a catch-all, and then field is very much focused on that real-world customer and user experience. And one thing that we definitely recommend for companies that don't have this as an established process is to start with beta, because typically they don't necessarily have the time to do all three or the budget to do all three. Um, so starting with beta gets you the best of both worlds and you just need a, a slightly more informal alpha um, and field is something that is, is more of a luxury at that point when you're just starting out. Now, ideally, all three fit together and do produce a far more successful product, but as a starting point, beta is a really good place under this methodology. Now, to contextualize these results a little bit, what I wanted to do is bring out some numbers and sort of show um, some experience here. So last year, we ran, uh, where we pulled a test from each week of the year to pull some numbers and get some averages as to kind of what this ultimately nets you. And the first, just to give an idea of sort of how betas typically go, um, an average beta for us had 64 testers. And the two numbers under it are part of this methodology. They're what we call core and surplus. One thing that's very important is to understand how much feedback you're going to get versus how many testers you actually have. And sometimes there can be a gap between those, especially if your processes aren't solid and mature. So the idea of core and surplus is that we have an idea of core testers that we absolutely need feedback from, and then we have a padding on top of that to ensure that if some people do or don't participate, then, then we're covered. So in this case, uh, we had an, you know, it looks like our goal was probably 50 on average, and as a result, we had 64 testers on average. Now, our average beta test was three weeks long, so they're not extensive in terms of duration. We get a lot done very quickly in this methodology, and the engagement rate was an average of 88%, which meant with those, te those surplus testers, it was 110%. Now, what that means is we could have actually had a few fewer surplus, but this was sort of a safety insurance plan to make sure that we were hitting our goals, and as a result, typically we delivered 110% in our tests, which again, this methodology can be very successful in that regard. Now, each test on average netted us 115 unique original bug reports, 
And those broke down like this when it comes to sort of the quality of those. We had six critical, 29 major, 46 minor, and 24 trivial. So there's some very, um, some very high level bugs in there in terms of critical and major. These are very critical things that could have caused an entire you know, recall in some cases. These are what we call golden bugs. Um, and then a big variety of everything else as well. So just a ton of bug reports in a three week period from that real audience. Now that's just part of what was collected. In addition to that, there was other feedback in the form of things like suggestions and, and praise of the product and so on. So 150 other uh, self-reported feedback. In addition, we typically are running surveys, which I'll talk to, to collect additional information, 165 unique survey responses. And then from this, we netted 20 product recommendations on average as far as where they should be taking different aspects, what should be being fixed, and so on. Again, I'll go into great detail on how that works in a few minutes. Now, why this is critical to the success of the product is relative to sort of where the market is and, and where it's been going. And I want to talk about sort of the technology market as a whole very briefly and, and something that I'm sure many of you can relate to. So if we go back and sort of look at what's been changing over time, one thing that's indisputable is that products in, in this market are just getting inherently more complex, more moving parts, more chips, faster chips, just a lot more going on. And again, I'll get into detail on this in a minute. At the same time, it's also indisputable that the sophistication of the audience that's typically a target of those products has gone down. And, and what we really mean there is that um, the products are getting more mainstream. So whereas there was a time when you know, very techie products were used by very techie people, um, now products are accomplishing very techie things with a much more mainstream audience. So the other kind of key change here that, that follows that is this market as a whole, um, all aspects of technology have absolutely blown up. Um, in the last 20 or so years, and, and again, more so each year than the last, which means the competition um, is going up dramatically. So what's important here is that you release a product that is the right blend of complexity with the sophistication and meets those needs better than your competitors do. So meeting in the middle is very important. And customer validation very specifically ties into both the audience and the product um, in some very, very unique ways. Now, a key example of this and something that's definitely driving a lot of business for us and, and probably represents many people on this webinar um, is IoT, Internet of Things products. And they're a prime example of, of what I just talked about for, for a few core reasons. Um, first, they're just naturally complex. Um, by definition, IoT products are a, a combination of software and hardware and services working in concert to produce um, a beautiful result. Um, they're also deeply interconnected. Again, the nature of them is they talk to other products. So be it different networks, different, uh, you know, talking to your mobile phone, whatever it happens to be, um, they cannot succeed on their own. They require a functional ecosystem and many moving parts outside their control to be a success. Um, also, they never stop evolving. Um, this is one of the sort of blessings and curses of the current technology generation is that every product is expected to get better over time. So again, you can't think of an IoT product that doesn't have some form of over-the-air update or some sort of idea of getting better and constantly changing, which means work is happening behind the scenes at virtually all times and new risk is being created. Finally, they're hyper-competitive. And this last one's kind of funny. When I wanted to create this slide originally, I went to my product team and I had realized that we ran uh, two completely separate tests for um, dog collars that were smart, so smart pet trackers. And being that we ran two, I sort of assumed there must be at least a few more on the market. So I wanted to use it as an example. I went to the product team and said, hey, can you go find me a couple more? And, and they found me over 30, um, just smart pet trackers alone. So just to give you an idea of how competitive that market is and just one little tiny IoT market, um, it's, it's immense, it's crazy. 
So uh, one of the things just to think about is while IoT is a wonderful example, um, it's not the only one. I mean, if you were to take the hardware out of the mix, even software nowadays uh, applies to the same thing. Software has gotten deep, you know, much more complex. It now interconnects with many other pieces of software. It never stops changing. And again, uh, due to sort of the commoditization of, of all of those markets, um, you know, and, and what app stores and whatnot have done, uh, software is far more competitive than it ever was before. So the same things all apply with this complexity. Now, the next thing I want to talk about for a minute is sort of the, the breadth of customer validation and what it touches, and from that, what sort of ROI results. And we have two axes here. We have sort of the upswing, starting with the quality of the product increases. Uh, we produce a better customer and user experience, and, and a higher quality, more usable product produces better reviews, resulting in more sales, customer sat, and then, of course, planning capabilities, because much of what we cover in customer validation won't necessarily get into the first version, but as I addressed, most products change and evolve over time, so that planning can be very crucial as soon as possible. Now, on the other side, we have the cost of quality going down. We're sort of spreading out um, where we're, you know, how our quality testing works to a group of people that's, that's typically very inexpensive and therefore catching more bugs faster, uh, which is much cheaper. Um, we then have the development time as a result is going down. Uh, my favorite one on this entire chart is the internal bias. Bringing the customer perception to the table early and often is very, very important to solving sort of internal disputes. So removing internal bias is very important. Um, as a result of these various attributes, we're getting the market faster. The higher quality, better product is reducing our return rate and also the support costs. And in the middle of this, of course, we have the profitability of a product. So this, uh, this process reflects you know, many, many aspects. And again, these are all things that product managers care deeply about. So it really is a reflection in that respect. Now that said, uh, who owns CV with an organization? So to sort of identify this, let's first talk about what CV touches or what it's sort of adjacent to in teams that you may already have or most likely already have. Um, so of course there's a quality component to it. Many people think of things like beta as being mostly bug hunts. So there is of course a quality aspect. Um, there's also a user experience. These are real customers using the product. So there's a lot to collect there. And then there's of course market research. So what many companies are doing, especially high growth technology companies, is they're, they're building teams and resources specifically for this, um, meaning they have customer validation teams. If you look at companies like Fitbit or GoPro, they've got you know, a dozen or more people who do nothing but this, and that's just core to their process, and, and it's very important to them. Um, that said, many companies don't have that yet. So what you do next is sort of extrapolate, okay, what are these different things that customer validation impacts um, really reflect in terms of the business and the, or the product? So in this case, um, quality is, of course, a result or a reflection of technology. User experience is about the customer, and market research is about the business component. And these are all things that are, again, a direct reflection of product management. So what we see a lot of is product managers taking control of this because they see it as a reflection of their own responsibilities and concerns. And again, where I said earlier, you know, quality is typically done by a quality team and, and market research, very explicitly a market research team. Um, this gives product managers a much greater stake and understanding of the product um, from the perspective of the technology, the customer, and the business. And again, going back to the phrase I said earlier, is we, we want product managers to be the smartest person in the room relative to their product, and this is a way to do that. Now, in terms of where it applies in the market and what sorts of products apply, um, first of all, this is something that is applied to hardware, software, and even service-based products. So um, very big variety there. And of course, the audience is consumer, business, and enterprise. And these are all different types of, uh, of, of markets that, that quite typically use customer validation in some form. Uh, the short answer is any product with a customer, but, but this isn't actually intended to be hard properly. I don't mean this applies to everything. 
Um, I don't actually believe that, that this process applies well, for example, to middleware or chips or things that really don't have an end user who's going to have a complete experience. There are variants that can apply to those because technically everything has a customer, but we're really talking about end users here. So some sort of user of that product who will have an opinion on it. Now, in terms of when this occurs, um, I want to talk a little bit about the life cycle. So quality is something that's typically happening uh, far-reaching throughout a product's development from you know, late prototype all the way um, through release. And this typically happens in parallel to that starting with alpha. And what alpha is really looking at is a test-ready product, meaning that internal resources have vetted it to some degree and decided that it's ready to be used by end users who are typically a bit more technical and understand that it's effectively a broken product. And again, alpha typically has phases. These little tick marks are the different sprints that are going to happen, understanding that alpha testers are getting something new every week or two that's changing that experience and evolving it and maturing it. Now, at a point when we're near feature complete, meaning both engineering and product are confident that the most severe issues have been resolved, then at that point, we're moving on to beta. And at that point, again, it's sort of an 80 to 90% range. And once we've done that for a period, again, our average was three, but typically they're about three to six weeks, you get to a field test. And at this point, the release candidate um, product has, is basically getting ready to be launched. At this point, most quality issues have been resolved and you're ready for natural usage by real customers. Now, of course, you're still gonna be finding bugs and still fixing things as long as you can, um, but really it's about making sure it performs out in that real world with all those moving parts. Now, the goal here is to be launch confident. And if you walk into our office, right, right next to that Douglas Adams quote, the other thing you see is launch with confidence. But the goal here is, is to make sure this product is ready to go. So in this case, uh, we're looking for 110% after field that we are ready for release. I can't wait to touch on that more. But first, let's take a quick break. It's Nahito season. It's time to get out of your office and into the market. Find out more at pragmaticmarketing.com. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the podcast. Now that said, I want to get into how it actually works and, and a bit more of sort of the education behind this. So. Um, a little bit about the typical process prior to customer validation and prior to um, sort of what we're talking about here. And this is something that many, many people on the call today might recognize and, and hopefully relate to. Um, the way this process typically worked is you start by begging for a build. Um, you know, chances are nobody wants to give you a slice necessarily any earlier than they have to, so you kind of have to go to engineering and beg for something that you can give to customers. Uh, next, you got to find those customers. You've got to scavenge for people who are willing to be testers. Uh, then you need to send out a product, and typically companies do this um, sort of rushed without any sort of context if they don't have a customer validation process in place. And, and then you're going to start begging for feedback, and, and this is where it starts to get really tough. And you're typically going to do that via email if you don't have any other sorts of tools available to you, maybe some sort of forums or something you already have. Um, then you're probably going to shotgun distribute those results. So you're going to give it to anybody who will listen, anybody who can potentially take action. You're going to give them a bunch, you know, big pile of firehoses. Um, and then you're going to do the big thing of sort of pray nothing fell through the cracks. And this is my little anxiety icon. And, and our whole idea here is, is to get rid of that anxiety. So let's talk about why this is challenging and, and what things specifically make this um, problematic. And again, anybody who's done this before hopefully will relate to, to some, if not all of these. So it starts with simply design and scoping. It's just understanding simply how you do this. How, how many testers do I need? How long? How do I get the product to them? How do I incentivize them? What am I collecting from them? What's reasonable to expect of them? 
Uh, just understanding how to scope a test is sort of problem number one. Uh, next comes qualified resources. Uh, if you don't do this well, it can consume an enormous amount of time, and, and doing it well, of course, requires the knowledge. So many companies just don't have um, either the people or the knowledge to get it going initially. Uh, next comes recruiting ideal testers, and this one is absolutely critical. Um, if you, you know, were to run a great test with the wrong testers, then you're not necessarily getting any feedback that's actually useful. Um, so recruiting ideal testers basically means that, that these people match your target market, they're enthusiastic enough to actually test for you, and most importantly, they're strangers. Uh, they don't have the internal bias of just employees. Now, there is a place for dog booting, which is, again, sort of a different discussion, but in a beta and a field, as an example, you really do need your target market. It can't just be people who have some sort of bias with a relationship to either the product or the company or the person um, that is, is diluting those results. Next comes um, what is sort of the prototypical example of, of a problem in this space or, or what most people recognize, which is persistent user engagement. So um, of a beta test that, that isn't well-formed and, and sort of an average beta test uh, without this process, you're typically going to see somewhere between 20 and 30% engagement rates, uh, meaning I give this product to uh, 100 people and, and only about 30 at most are going to give me any useful and meaningful feedback, which um, obviously includes a lot of cost and a lot of time and is very problematic. Uh, but assuming you've gotten past that, it next comes down to collecting useful feedback, making sure this feedback isn't um, just an echo chamber or issues you already know you're going to solve or things that you have no control over, um, but rather feedback that, that can be meaningful. And then finally, uh, what I believe is most important is then deriving actionable recommendations. Um, if you were to run an amazing test but do nothing with those results, then all you did was waste time and money. So it ultimately comes down to the ROI formed from coming up with um, real moves that you can make and actual recommendations on this product. So that said, uh, let's go to CV 101, starting with the objective, uh, why we're here. And really what we're trying to do is ensure product success in the eyes of, of three entities, the company, the product owner, and the customer. And obviously there's a lot of overlap here, but they all have different initiatives and, and sort of prerogatives. Um, so it's important that in this process we understand that all three of these are considered and all three are very, very important. So the company, the product owner, and the customer is sort of our trifecta. Now what we're trying to do with this process, and everything is designed uh, around this idea, is we're trying to generate three actionable types of feedback. The first is things that should be fixed. What in this product is broken? What needs to be fixed? Next is what could be improved about this product? Where is it going to go? And again, sometimes this is for release, but in this world of OTA, it's, it's probably the next release. And then finally, what about this product is beloved? What delighted people and what should be promoted? And we call this process FIPS. What should be fixed, what should be improved, and what should be promoted? And, and FIPS is really the idea behind everything. It's finding, getting all this feedback, gathering all this feedback, and then correlating it in such a way that it can be used um, in this pattern that is, is very easy to understand and then take action on. So starting with the process at a high level, um, we start with planning. And planning is, is basically test scoping, but most importantly, product mapping. I'm going to go into some detail in a minute here on how that works, but it's very important to map this product so we have an understanding of exactly what we're going to test, and that uh, understanding is shared by everyone involved. Next, we have prep, which is recruitment and selection. So basically getting as many people as possible interested and then selecting the ideal candidates. Again, I'm going to go into each of these in a minute. We then have directed feedback. This is us pushing for specific types of feedback at a very certain cadence over the course of this test. And then behind that, we have the ongoing feedback, which is the circumstantial or more experiential feedback that's being generated naturally. 
Now, in addition to the feedback we're collecting, we're supporting testers, making sure they can test successfully, and we're also managing their engagement, meaning we're being proactive if they're not engaging for some reason. We're doing that through simple means. And then finally, we have analysis and recommendation based on this feedback. And again, that, feed, that recommendation is gonna align with that FIPS concept I spoke to a moment ago. Now, what's also very important about this is that this happens weekly. What you can't do necessarily in, in the tech space right now is go into hibernation for four or six weeks and then come out with a bunch of results and expect action to be taken. So this entire process is designed in a more real-time methodology, understanding that on a weekly basis we have to have actionable recommendations to move forward, which again is in part why this product is or this process is looked at as more of a tour to ensure that we're collecting all of the feedback um, over time, but, but at a very specific cadence. Finally, we have closure, which means product collection, if it's something physical, incentives, which I'll be talking to, and then wrap up. So this is the process at a glance, and again, the colored ones I'm gonna dive into here. So test scoping and, and product mapping. Uh, what we're doing really is, is mapping the product into a series of topics. And each topic is a, a feature, a function, or an experience that you want tested as part of your product. So in this case, uh, the first topic would be something like the out-of-the-box experience. And I, I've got it grouped into a theme of onboarding, and that theme is gonna be sort of my focus for the week. So I would give that uh, topic a description. So in this case, the initial experience and in opening the product package, and I would give it an activity. And typically the activity would be more in-depth than this. This is sort of summarized for this slide. Um, but the activity is gonna provide some direction to the testers to make sure they're all using the same sort of area of the product. And it's not a test case in that this isn't QA, but rather making sure that they know that feature exists and that they're getting in the right direction to test it. We're then gonna give it a weight, and weight is important to prioritization. So this is effectively their weight relative to other issues, and you'll see that in a moment. And then a size, and the size is gonna help us understand how much we can accomplish in a week. So next we have product setup, which is just another topic, and again, a description, an activity, a weight, and a size, and the same for account creations. So this would represent a week of testing. And what's very important to understand is that topic and that description, that list is actually going to be shared with all of the testers, as well as the activity, but a little differently, um, to ensure that everyone involved is aligned. And again, this means the product manager, whoever's um, responsible for this, as well as the testers need to have a clean understanding of what this product is broken into these simple but meaningful topics that they'll be testing. So next we move to recruitment and selection. And what we're typically looking for is, is an existing customer base or some list of customers or an outside resource. And we happen to make a community called Betabound available to everyone, and there's actually no cost to being able to advertise your tests on there. So we will actually promote your tests to testers for you um, if it happens to be a new product or you want to extend beyond your existing customer base, which is typically wise. So once you've done that recruitment, then what you want to do is start funneling down to find the ideal candidate, starting with whatever the core requirements of this test are. So for example, if it's an IoT product that's gonna reference, uh, that's only gonna be sold in the US, then we might want US pro uh, residents and they might need some other products for it to talk to. Next, we're gonna get into different vectors of sort of segmenting these users to make sure that we represent our market from two distinct angles. The first angle is demographics, so the types of people these are. You might align this with personas. So in this case, we have different buckets of users. This is an oversimplification uh, for most tests, but just an example. Uh, so in this case, we might be looking for age ranges. We then have technical segmentations, for example, Android and iOS. And this is that other side to where now we're looking at the things that represent the product and its success in a technical capacity. So we want to understand the people and the product and make sure that we build out our market. Finally, we typically collect additional traits. 
And these are going to be useful for contextualizing their feedback further. And at the end of the day, the goal is that every tester is a targeted, enthusiastic stranger, as I referenced earlier. Now, our feedback typically comes in two forms. We have directed and ongoing, which I referenced on the previous slide, and I want to dive a little bit into how each of those work. So directed is basically a situation where once a week we're assigning a series of activities to the testers at a very pre-planned cadence. Uh, we then engage and support the testers, making sure they can test. And then we run a very simple survey. It's a very standardized survey that's very quick to run, do the same thing each week, but relative to each topic. So I'm going to show it in a moment or show a sample of it in a moment. Um, we then do response coding and basically read the results and correlate them. So this is, a, again, a slight simplification, but the basic idea of what a customer uh, acceptance survey is. And the core idea is we're going to ask their satisfaction on each topic. Um, and then what we're going to do is ask a follow-up question that's going to pre-channel their feedback into our objectives based on how they answered. So for example, um, if I say, please rate your satisfaction of unboxing the product, and they were to answer a two, uh, we know that wasn't a great experience. So we want to explicitly ask what went wrong. If we then ask it for the next topic and they were to answer a four, um, we know that's not perfect, but it's not horrible. So we're asking what could be better. So what went wrong is most likely going to align to fix in the fifth part. Um, now we're looking for generally improvements. What could have been better? And then finally, rate your satisfaction of the third topic. And if this user were to say five, we're going to say, can you specifically state what earned that fifth star? So what we're doing is we're saving ourselves an enormous amount of time by channeling their feedback based on these simple answers. And then from that, we can derive a lot, which again, will turn into our recommendations. Now, in addition to the directed feedback, which is sort of on a week-to-week -week basis focusing users so that the conversation is in one aspect of the product, one area of the product, we also collect ongoing feedback continuously throughout the test. And again, this is a very sort of explicit set of ongoing feedback types. Um, the first thing we collect are issues, which you'd probably correlate with something like bug reports. And the goal of issues is to test the quality, the interoperability, and the real-world performance of that product. Now, we also collect ideas as the next feedback type. And the idea here is to measure acceptance, prioritize the backlog, and, and generate new ideas. Um, and then praise is the third, which then aligns with um, promote, is to gather delight, strengths, and real-world insights. And then finally, we do also collect discussions, which emulate real-world discussion and drive collaboration. Um, the first three are colored specifically because these do align and pre-channel feedback into our goals, which again is what we should be fixing, what we should be improving, and what we should be promoting about this product. Uh, discussions are important for a couple of reasons. Typically this happens, in, in, at least on our platform, in a very um, private environment. And what we want to do is contain the excitement about this product. Now, one other important point is that all of these uh, feedback types um, are pre-aligned with the topics. So whenever a user is reporting a piece of feedback, um, it should be aligned with one of the topics of the test, because again, that is a map of the product. And by doing so, we now have a clear alignment of, of what we should be fixing, improving, promoting based on the topic, which as I mentioned earlier, is weighted, so then we can prioritize from that. And in our platform, this is actually handled for you automatically. You have a concept called impact scoring, which is then taking all of this and prioritizing your feedback. Now, the other aspect of this, which is a little more detailed than this slide, is typically all of these um, are not a one-way discussion. It's not a simple bug report form. These happen as more of a forum. We don't want to collect the same issue six different times and then have to sort it out six different ways. What we want is those to become one conversation, and the fact that six people are talking about it is a signal that's going to lead to a higher impact. 
So one of the unique values of something like customer validation over something like quality is in QA testing, everybody's sort of testing discreetly and you understand what your issues are, but we understand how prevalent they are, how prolific they are um, by having them uh, sort of reported by multiple users. And that's sort of part of the methodology. Now in terms of the results and what this turns into, um, all of this is ultimately revealed as scorecards. And the idea of scorecards is a very simple means that can go to the highest levels of the company, but typically can be drilled in from there for anyone who wants the details. So in this case, this is an example that we just talked about. This is an overview of the week. And that simple rating scale that we used is actually giving us a reference point for how each of our topics did generally. Now from there, in this case, I can see the out-of-the-box experience. The score uh, was an average. And from that, we have three recommendations for fixing, four for improving, and, and one for promoting. So again, everything aligns around that concept, which is very easy to understand. Uh, so an example of a fixed scorecard, and these are templates we can provide, um, is something like you need to reinforce the intent of the packaging. Uh, this is a fix. It's color-coded. We have 20% of our respondents. The severity is critical. The priority in this case is one. Um, and then we have quotes as evidence to back this up. And in our case, again, we've also included the various feedback types that people um, reported that we can drill into and actually engage with those customers if necessary. And again, that what happens to be an aspect of our platform. So this is an improved example, very similar, and again, color-coded, and then promote as another example. Now, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of the process, and, and I'm starting to get a little bit quiet on time here, so um, is incentives. And this is typically one of the first questions that, that comes up, and it really is a long discussion, but I'll, I'll give a quick summary. Um, one important thing is that a test incentive really should be a thank you for the engagement. It is not intended to be the primary motivator. And this is something we've actually done a lot of research into. Um, you want people in your test who want the problem solved that your product solves, um, be it something your competitors don't solve or something new, and, and they want to engage because this is the type of product that they would be enthusiastic to purchase, which again is why target market is also so important. Um, typically, to contextualize a little bit further, if possible, especially if it's a consumer product, the final product is preferred because people feel they had a, a voice in shaping that product, and that's very important and, and very moving. Um, if not the case, it can be as simple as a $20 to $50 sort of value. We often do gift cards and things like that um, with thank you letters just as a simple way to kind of build a relationship and thank them for their time. Uh, B2B, on the other hand, is much more complicated, and that's a discussion that we can have on a one-off basis because it really does depend on the market and the value of the product and the buying decision, you know, the decision makers and so on. So that's, that's just a much deeper subject. Uh, so it's just kind of a follow-up here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, sort of how Center Code fits into this. Um, to solve this problem, like any problem in information systems, you, you really need three things. You, you need the people to do the work. In this case, we provide the testers for you at no cost, um, or we can manage these programs for you. You need the process to get it done. So we actually have a full framework as well as a certification program which teaches you how to do this. Um, and then you need the technology. So the people get the work, the process, or get the work done, the process gets it done right, and the technology makes it scalable and efficient. And that's, that's what our platform does. So if you happen to be interested in, in talking further, if there's something else we can help with, um, first of all, you can schedule a platform demo at just centercode.com slash demo, and, and we can walk you through and sort of talk about how it might be able to help you um, and or your organization. Um, if you're not interested in, in running this type of test yourself, but rather need it done, um, there's a unique service that we offer as sort of part of our process, which is we'll actually write a test plan for you. 
And in our, in our process, we actually think of that test plan as sort of a, a sales tool, frankly, and that we'll come to you and we'll actually interview you about your product. And from that, we'll scope an entire test at no cost with no commitment. And from there, you have a test plan that you can take action on your own. You can do it entirely yourself. You could theoretically use our platform. Um, or, of course, that, that is something you can engage with our services and, and we would associate a price with. Um, and then finally, we have uh, free resources available. So um, content is a really core part of our strategy. We're constantly working on sort of education resources, and we make many, many of them available to you for free, um, as well as an educational blog, and we're constantly hosting webinars and so on as well. Um, so there's many free resources available. Now, finally, uh, this is my favor to ask of, of you guys. Um, once a year, we do conduct an annual survey. I mentioned it earlier. It only takes somewhere between five and 10 minutes to fill out. It's not extensive. Um, and you can get to that at centercode.com slash survey18. And we do give out um, immediately an Amazon gift card, a $10 gift card, which uh, you can buy whatever you want with um, for that. And, and I would very much plead with you to, to help with this because it really does better the entire industry. It's only a few minutes of your time and, and you might even find the questions themselves easy or interesting. And on top of that, we do give everyone who fills it out those results um, as soon as they're, they're compiled. So um, if you're interested in sort of how other companies approach this and whatnot, it's a very useful way to do that. And you learn 10 bucks and it's only a few minutes of your time. So I very much appreciate um, anybody who would go and fill that up. And my research team would appreciate it even more. So they reminded me to do this. Um, so thank you very much with that. So that said, um, I think my timing is pretty good. And I uh, would be happy to answer any sorts of questions. And again, please feel free. Uh, to shoot me an email, luke at centercode.com. Um, I am absolutely fascinated and love with technology, love to help any way I can. Um, and you can, of course, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn as well. So that said, Rebecca, I think I'm right at my 45-minute point. That's pretty good. All right. This is great. We have a bunch of questions, uh, and we're happy to keep getting more. My first question is, um, they're curious as how or if you've applied these techniques to regulated industries where healthcare information is being delivered and how that might affect it. Yes, uh, we have. Um, I'll, I'll give you two examples of, of regulated industries that, that have been applied. Um, healthcare is one, and you know something interesting there is is that it sort of actually happened in reverse. Is, is we were working with tech companies that are sort of naturally becoming to health companies. So if you think of fitness trackers as an example, they're starting to get sort of regulated, and a lot more is kind of going in there. Um, you know, there's other examples uh, of. Um, actually, the other big regulatory one would be finance, and, and we've started working more with finance companies that have the same regulations there. Um, there are different rules, and it's, it's a bit of a longer discussion. We're actually thinking about putting out some content specifically to those things because we've been working with them pretty frequently in the last couple of years. Um, but absolutely, there, there's nothing really inhibiting there. Um, there are things to think about. You know, on the health side, obviously, we have HIPAA and then you know, a million things on the, on the finance side. Um, but it absolutely applies. And if you have any specific questions or, or a specific industry, then feel free to either reach out to me or, or one of the links I gave out on the prior page. Um, and, and we'd be happy to uh, talk more about it. But yes, we can absolutely do it. And I would, I would say the same thing, even if they're not using you, but they're using, they're doing it on themselves. If you could talk a little bit about, we have a heavy B2B and enterprise audience and, and some of the maybe distinct challenges and or opportunities related with that. Yeah, absolutely. And and we actually, you know, we, we talk about, I, I actually, I think it's a flaw in sort of our, our pitch, honestly, and that it, it comes off as if we only deal with sort of IoT and consumer stuff, but, but nearly half of our audience is actually enterprise and business. Um, it, it's not, it's just most people recognize the, the Fitbits and GoPros of the world, so it's an easier example. Um, so, so yes, those are different. Typically, 
recruiting works very differently. Typically, you're recruiting into the company and, and almost, you know, almost an account-based sales type methodology of you need to find the person who, who has the problem and they're going to recruit um, their subordinates as, as testers. The engagement process is typically very different in that the incentives are, are very different. Um, there's little tweaks to each step of it, but it, it definitely applies. The actual feedback portion, the results portion, is, is virtually identical. Um, it's really just about in, engagement with the users and how you find them and also what your participation rates are expected to be. Um, typically, you're going to get lower participation rates if people are uh, sort of forced to do this and they're not interested in it. So it's very much a messaging challenge in terms of going back to something I said a few minutes ago, which is you really need to think about your product. I mean, technology exists to solve problems. That's what it does. Um, so you need to think about your prob product as what problem does this solve? Who does it solve it for? Let's go find the people who are interested in getting that problem solved. And if you think about it from that perspective, it applies um, just as, as well to business and enterprise, actually more so, frankly, to business and enterprise um, than it does the consumer space. So we work with a lot of companies, you know, everyone from EMC to CA, Bluebeam, those are all sort of enterprise-y companies um, that, that we work with that, that use this, these types of processes today. And, and again, we actually do have some resources relative to that topic specifically, and I'd be happy to share them to anybody who, who has the questions. Right. We have several people who um, talked to you a little bit about the timing of the testing. When we talked about UX testing as part of the sort of the after the product was built, several questioned whether that was the most uh, productive time to do UX testing, or if there's ways of pulling that earlier in the cycle. Um, so, so we're we're not in conflict with UX testing. We're typically happening in, in parallel to it. UX testing happens at you know different times for different reasons. But but what we're not talking. So actually, okay, let me rephrase. Um, for us, UX and user experience is, is an explicit part of what we do, but it's not UX testing per se. Um, it's a different methodology. UX testing is, is typically not the sort of overtime testing. It's more sessions and so on. Um, and, and again, it really depends on, on what your product development cycle looks like. Um, for us, we don't, I guess, let me think of it this way. Normal UX testing is happening during alpha customer validation is not trying to achieve UX results during alpha. Um, but we, what we don't recommend, and this is something we typically try to be really clear about, is customer validation as a concept is not a, a one-stop solution that replaces all other forms of testing. UX testing, market research, and, and quality are all, as examples, very, very valuable, and they do different things differently. Um, customer validation brings it together. And, and it brings it together in a cycle over time that does have its unique attributes of real products, real customers you know, over time. Um, so, so again, it's not about getting rid of um, or, or not doing UX testing earlier. UX testing does happen earlier. It's about not being as concerned in customer validation about UX because you sort of have to focus your efforts. And one of the problems is it's very hard to do real customer experience testing on a very incomplete product. So there's this, this correlation of earlier in the product and customer validation, we're focusing on getting the product ready for a broader audience. So we're mostly focused on bugs because if we find, if we try to do UX testing in that real environment over time and people are just running into bugs, you're sort of diluting that user experience anyway. And it just doesn't apply. So again, we weren't suggesting that you get rid of UX testing in any way. Um, it's rather, we don't focus on UX as a goal early. We focus on it more late. And and again, there, there is a, a longer discussion there of, is that useful? And if you, the answer is definitely yes, um, but it's definitely used for different things. You're, you're not looking to find 
core UX problems in a field test, you're looking to polish and, and sort of tweak. And then a lot of what you find, again, will also go into future versions. You know, one of the things that is, is problematic in terms of technology timelines is you don't get to release a product and then the next day start working on the next product and then you don't release anything for 18 months again. You need a lot of intel um, already in the bank the day that product hits market. And this is one of the ways that, that a product manager can do that. Excellent. So not, it's not a, instead of the UX earlier, but there's a portion of this in customer validation that will also provide valuable UX testing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Um, so we have a couple of people who talked about customer validation from sort of the product marketing side and the messaging side. And I know that's not what Center Code focuses on particularly, but do you have any insights on how they might use this technique um, uh, around there? Yes, and, and again, that's the, the idea of sort of fix, improve, and promote as being our broad goals, those things mean different things to different people. Um, so that's the side that, for example, promote might be more meaningful, whereas engineers, you know, promote just makes them feel good. Um, so, so that's a, a big part of it, and, and it really then, if that's, you know, there's a good chance, and, and this is part of why our sort of topic-based methodology works, is that the topics are really up to, you know, they're in the eye of the beholder. Whoever is, is running this test and, and has their objectives is going to be setting those topics. It's very core that they get out what they want. So for a product marketing person, the, the topics might just be different, and therefore you're focusing people on different things. Um, the end result, again, is always going to be, you know, what do we need to fix? What should we be improving? What could we be promoting? Um, but what those things relate to, what topics of the product um, are unique to um, the role. So um, it really depends. For a customer validation team, it's probably going to be very all-inclusive because that's their focus. For a, a product team or product marketing team, whoever it happens to be, it's probably going to be more um, funneled or, or siloed into, you know, whatever happens to be um, important to that product or them uh, specifically, just based out of time limits. So we have a couple people, and I'm sure you can help them with this, who want to help help them figure out how to build the business case that will allow them to convince their company to invest in this type of testing, both from the yep. the, the money and the time required. Absolutely. So that's one of my favorite topics right now and, and something that is, is a daily discussion here. So, so we released something uh, a while back, which is an ROI kit for this, and, and the ROI kit um, is actually extensive. It covers a lot of detail. Um, it allows you to put in sort of some very basic information as well as adjust a number of, of um, uh, variables, uh, assumptions. And those assumptions will produce an enormous amount of information, which should be some sort of backup and, and kind of what you should expect from this. Um, it also lists the intangible benefits. It's, it's a huge, huge kit. Um, it's something that you can fill out and, and complete on your own uh, relatively easily, and we, we even did like video materials and whatnot for it. It, it, it comes with a white paper, or um, that's something you could contact us, and, and with no sort of cost or engagement or no cost or commitment, um, my team would just walk you through it and produce an ROI report for you. Um, that's the short answer, believe it or not. The long answer, no, not the, the longer answer, actually, let's call it reverse. I'll, I'll make it short. Um, is that this is actually something we're, we're currently revisiting and we're going to be coming up with a lot more resources in, in early 2019, specifically around ROI. Um, we've actually got a revamp of that kit coming as well as a simple, simpler version and, and a number of, of webinars and whatnot which are going to be focused on this topic. So ROI is going to be one of the key, um, one of the key focuses for us to, in messaging next year. Great, great. All right, do you have any tips for prioritizing feedback remediation when your product delivery timeline is right, is tight? <laughs> 
So, yes. Um, and, and that really comes back into, you know, what we look at is we score everything, you know, much in, in the content marketing world, for example, you have user scoring in our world, you have feedback scoring. And the way that, that feedback scoring basically works is um, we're looking at two things. We're looking at severity and, and we're looking at priority. Um, those and, and then that priority is, is dictated also by, um, for example, the uh, I'm, I'm sorry, severity and frequency. Um, frequency is, is dictated by how much of your audience is, is having this issue and priority um, is relative to sort of the depth of the issue and, you know, is it a critical bug versus a cosmetic bug as an example um, and, and how it relates to a topic. And, and each of those things is bringing in a different weight. So I, I just due to time, that was something I couldn't dig into super deeply, but every topic is given some weight. Again, you've got that other influence or, or signal of, of, you know, the severity of a bug as an example, and then you've got the frequency. So for example, um, what that's going to do is, is let me know that this is a critical bug, but it's a complete outlier versus this is a critical bug um, that is being experienced by everyone. Or uh, the better example, because people generally skip over these, is this is a cosmetic bug. It's very simple, but everybody's having it. And this methodology is going to float those and change, you know, basically prioritize it for you. What's interesting about it then, and, and this is again something that, that we do in our platform, is, is you can shift your priorities at any time. So for example, if something becomes meaningful midway through the test, this feature is way more used than we thought it would be, then you can adjust the weight of that topic and all of a sudden your, your feedback is reprioritized. Now, if you wanna go deeper, you can also associate sort of the time that's going to be invested in, in addressing these different issues as another signal. And then that will also be part of that prioritization for you. So then you can blend in your time because for some people, as in this example, time is obviously the limiter, the restraint. Um, so so the, the key is, and it's a simple concept. And again, we actually have a whole, if you go to the free resources page, there's a whole guide on this, on, on feedback scoring. Um, that feedback scoring concept is, is how you do prioritization and it makes way for very limited roadmaps. Um, but again, the other thing to always keep in mind is, is products typically don't stop evolving. But if you can't fix it today, that doesn't mean the feedback's not valuable. It's going to be incredibly valuable tomorrow and getting it ahead of time is going to be very, very useful for, for getting to market next time. Great. All right, so we had several people ask questions regarding how this sort of customer validation and testing works within a continuous uh, ah. development, continuous <laughs> release process. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's a whole other deck. Um, that, that's that. Yeah. So, so, so <laughs> that is. We can do you know, a podcast on that. Yeah, and 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 we'll probably that'd be a fun thing to do. So, so continuous testing, dog fooding, um, those are the two other topics that that we do want to want to talk about, and, and maybe there'll be a, another one of these meetings at some point, or and, and we're hosting webinars on it. Um, it does apply, and I would not be doing it um, justice to, to talk about it that quickly. The, the very short version I'll give you is that typically what you're looking at is a rolling list of customers to where we've got some testers who are engaged continuously. We have a bit stronger of a relationship with them. They're more of a private community. And typically what you're doing is, is as those people start to sort of age out and become disinterested, you're bringing in new people and you're pre-segmenting and weighting those um, based on which, you know, if they're new or, or old. And, and there's just, there's a lot of detail that goes into it. Um, it's just a longer discussion, but it absolutely applies. It's actually how we do things here. Um, it, it's, it's something you, you can do, it's, it's just, it's, it's its own deck. <laughs> so we'll, we'll keep that one separately. And, and if that is a good podcast topic, I'd be happy to talk about it. That would be great. All right, we got time for one more question. Uh, so could you go over some of the explicit differences in customer validation of a product versus a feature? Um, well, 
Customer validation is sort of both, right? It, the whole, you can just test a feature and, and we definitely do that. It, it's quite often that, and, and by the way, the same methodologies typically apply. It's just a much broader topic list. If you think about it that way is, is the topic, if you're just focusing on a feature, you probably have more explicit topics that are focused on aspects or usage of that feature. Um, whereas if it's a topic, it's gonna, or sorry, if it's an entire product, it's gonna be a broader topic list and, and the activities are a bit more general. Um, what you would typically see is a new product going to market um, is going to be a full product customer validation test that really should have an alpha beta field test. Um, whereas once you get to that OTA phase or that update phase, um, that's when you're focusing on specific features. And again, the process is nearly identical. Um, the real difference is that you're focused on, on your topics are changing. Um, and that's one of the neat things about sort of this process and, and going back to the continuous focus is continuous testing. You're typically doing some level of regression and some level of, of something new is being tested. So you, your topics basically cover that. I, I really can't understate how, or overstate how, how important sort of that, that very basic topic scoping idea is because it's flexible enough to apply to both of these. Awesome. All right, Luke, this was a truly fantastic session, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Okay. Thank you very much. And, and again, thank you everyone for attending. And, and again, I'd appreciate it if you could centercode.com slash survey18, and, and please feel free to download resources. If there's anything we can help with, um, please reach out um, as well as to me personally if you have any questions. Thank you so much for your time, everyone. It's greatly appreciated. Awesome. All right. Don't forget to join us next month, November 14th, when the CMO and VP of product for CRAN join to discuss how to use competitive intelligence to ensure a successful product launch. We are thrilled to have them join us and really looking forward to that session as well. All right. That does it for this edition of Pragmatic Live. Thank you for joining us and have a wonderful rest of the week.